Well, my name is Tellus Fuller. I'm the youth pastor here on staff at Grace Covenant Church, and I get the privilege of sharing a message with the church today. Yeah, thanks, Miata. Appreciate it. Some of you guys are like, Pastor Brett's not here? Okay. All right. Who's this young kid? Um, I have his last name, so that help. We, uh, we're starting a new series today, um, and it's the, uh, um, we're in our Advent season, and I don't know about you, but communion and Advent are two of my favorite things in church that we get to do, two of the, my greatest, my favorite gifts that God gave us, and I'm so happy that we got to do it both in the same Sunday. I don't know if you're like me and you enjoy communion as much as I do, or you're like me and you enjoy Advent as much as I do, but... Today, I think it's going to be a really special day that we can encounter God and we can really expect him to do something. Because just like what Pastor Tiffany was talking about with Advent and what that means for us is that Advent isn't just about us saying, oh, now it's Christmas season. Some of us have been in Christmas season since uh, November 1st. But for the rest of us, it's not just about, oh, now this is the time that we get to do presents and it starts getting colder and I get to wear green and red and Santa and all that type of stuff. But Advent is really about expecting what God is going to do, expecting Jesus to come into our lives, expecting, anticipating the coming of our Messiah. And that's what we want to talk about today. That's what the passage that we're going to dive into today, which I'm really excited to get into with all of us. And I think that God's going to show up. Do you think God's going to show up today, church? I think God's going to do something today. So I want you to raise your expectation, and I want you to start now anticipating and expecting what God's going to do, not just in this season of Christmas, but maybe, just maybe for you today. Start expecting, not just in the season, maybe when my life gets a little bit better, but maybe in your life today, maybe in your marriage today, maybe with your kids today, maybe with school today, that God is going to do something. Advent is a time that we can expect God to do something. We can anticipate that God is going to do something. So we're going to jump into a passage. It's going to be Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, Chapter 9, verse 6, and before we jump into that, it gives you a little context about what we're about to jump into. Right here, we have a nation of God, Israel, who is going through and has been going through kind of a difficult time with God, with their faith, with their religion, with their Lord. And, with their Lord. and they get to this point where they've been through a lot. If you've read the Bible at any point, you kind of know a few of the stories of what this nation that God has called has been through. They've been through exile. They've been through bondage and slavery and different rulers and different kings and, and prophets and, and trials and all these different things that this nation of God has gone through. And they start kind of feeling desperate at some point. Desperate for a cure, desperate for an answer, desperate for a solution to the problem that they put them, I mean, that they found themselves in. You ever been there? Desperate for a solution? You ever been there looking for an answer? Trying to find a way out of the place that maybe you did put yourself in, but now we're coming back to God saying, God, where are you? Israel's finding themselves in a really difficult position where they've, known a God, but they've turned from a God. They've grew up with these stories, intimate stories. Can you imagine just for a second being a Jew, being an Israelite and hearing, oh no, it's not just a story of David was this cool guy. David was my great, great, great grandpa. It's not just this story of, oh, Abraham, I, I, I've heard, I think I've heard that name before, but no, my great, great, great uncle knew him. These are personal accounts. These are personal stories. When we get to this point in Israel's past and 
uh, well, we're about to read this passage from Isaiah. Israel's gone through a lot. And Isaiah is presenting this whole message, not just as some hope, but actually as some encouragement to get our stuff together. Kind of as some encouragement to say, well, I just want you guys to know that God is coming, but here are some words that Isaiah used before we get to chapter 9. Some words that uh, God tells Isaiah, who is a prophet, speaking to his people. He tells them this. He says, they have forsaken the Lord. They are evildoers. An ox knows its master, but they don't know me. They bring me vain offerings. And this is supposed to be God's chosen people, right? And, And God is essentially saying to them that they don't know me. Like an ox knows its master. They're saying that an animal knows who is the person to train it more than the people of God know their God. They're in a bad position here. And then we get to chapter 9 of Isaiah, verse 6, and it says this. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We could stop right there. And we could say, thank you, God, for that. I think we should say, thank you, God, for that. What I want to title this message is Embracing the Unexpected. Embracing the Unexpected with two points of an unexpected king and an unexpected kingdom. Embracing the Unexpected, an unexpected king and an unexpected kingdom. Will you pray with me for a little bit? God, we love you so much. But more importantly, you love us. God, your love has no boundaries. There's not an extent that your love will not go to to find us, to reach us, to reconcile us back to you. And Lord, in this moment, we're asking that you would do what we can't in this moment, what I can't in this moment, that you would speak through me, that you would open my mouth and you would open our ears to hear what your spirit has to say to us. God, we're desperate. We're anticipating Jesus. We need Jesus. Holy Spirit, we invite you into this place. We invite you into our hearts. We're saying, have your way. We love you so much. God, I'm asking that you would empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys ever been in anticipation of something? or expected something to happen. I um, recently, it's a, uh, my, so recently, I was actually just about to get on, on stage and, and somebody came up to me and they were like, in case you didn't know, my, it, we had a, um, 
Thanksgiving this past week, as you did, like we had Thanksgiving and you didn't, right? That makes no sense. But like Thanksgiving was this past week, right? And so my family was gathered around. It was a special Thanksgiving because we actually, this was the first Thanksgiving that I was an uncle. So my brother literally had a kid like a few days ago before this Thanksgiving. You can hold your applause. It's all right. I'm just, it was a lot of work. And it's actually hilarious because people will come up to me, right? And they'd be like, oh, congratulations. Like they started asking all these things about like the baby. They'd be like, how, like, how long is she? How much does she weigh? Like, what does she look like? Does she, all this type of stuff and are mom and dad healthy and all that stuff and they would always end it with like congratulations and I would always be like why right like why why I didn't do anything I'm not gonna change her diaper I'm not gonna like stay up with her at night I'm not feeding her but thank you like I'll I'll accept the congratulations but I didn't do anything and all I'm gonna do is spoil her right like that's that's my whole plan and, and as they were getting ready obviously for this baby they were anticipating everything that she would be right you ever been in this place where you're anticipating something that you know is going to happen and you're expecting it to be a certain type of way? And this time comes and um, there are all these emotions and feelings and, 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 and thoughts and, and anticipation wrapped up in this moment of what this baby's going to be like and who she's going to look like and what she's going to do and all these things. And then this baby comes and the family's so excited and everything's great and it's, it's, it's a great time, right? And... <laughs> and they come back from the hospital and then they start losing sleep, right? And they come back from the hospital and they realize, I don't know what a cry means. And they come back from the hospital and they're like, okay, yes, I love you, Tellus, but you need to leave. Like, we don't want you anywhere near the baby right now. We just want to go to sleep and we don't know why she's crying. And we're trying to figure this out for ourselves because we're first time parents. And I really love this baby, but I have no idea what she wants. And they're in this place of anticipation, they were in this place of anticipation and now they're in this place of experience where they're experiencing what they were anticipating and their anticipation does not look like what their experience thought it would be. You ever been in this place? This is kind of the place where the Israelites found themselves. This is the place where we might find ourselves in. When we read about this story, we can think about the Israelites and push them far off and say they're really far away from where we are at personally. But if we're being real with ourselves eight, at 9.22 on a Sunday morning, we can say that maybe, just maybe, I'm a little bit more like the Israelites than I would like to admit. That I'm maybe not as good as I, maybe, maybe I'm not as holy, maybe my religion isn't, Maybe we're a little closer to the Israelites than we previously thought we were. And when we get to this story that Isaiah is sharing, I think it's crazy because one of the first things that Isaiah says is he's given this amazing proclamation about who the Messiah is going to be and what his name shall be called. The first thing that he says is, for us, to a child is born, a son is given. And if you read your Bible, and this is the first thing that it reminded me of, it says, when we say a son is given, the first thing that I think of is John 3, 16, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, right? That for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And the first thing that Isaiah, is, that God's saying to Isaiah, to the people, first thing that God wants us to know about Jesus is that he is giving him to us. I think it's beautiful that the first thing that we are told is that a son, a child is born and a son is given. And the crazy thing is that God never gives because he has to. He gives because he wants to. That thought in itself will change our whole mindset about how we think about this Christmas season. Maybe how we think about the future, how we think about what we have. Because as much as we would like to say that this Christmas season is about giving, 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 we really maybe would admit that it's a lot about receiving for us too. 
But when a God who has nothing to get from his giving gives, it produces such a grateful heart and an anticipation in our souls for what that gift might be for us. We need to know that the first thing that God did is that he gave his son. And, and, and I think about what must have been so compelling for Jesus to come to earth. Like, like Jesus didn't send an angel. Like God, God didn't send an angel. God didn't send another prophet. God didn't send another king. God didn't send an aspect of himself to earth. He sent his whole self. What must have been so compelling for God to step out of heaven to earth, giving up all of his privilege and none of his person, but all of his privilege, escaping perfect unity with the Father and with the Holy Spirit to dwell with us? What must have been so compelling for God to do that for me? I remember I was at, uh, an, like in middle school on a missions trip uh, in D.C., and it was my first mission trip. I was probably like 12 years old or something like that. And I was super excited and ready for this mission trip. And I, I knew like what it was supposed to be and what I was going to do. And, and we had like this itinerary of what it was going to look like. And I remember we went on this mission trip to D.C. And um, we were like serving the homeless. And it was a really, really incredible moment for me when I got to serve somebody and preach the gospel and, and, and love Jesus and, and kind of put feet to my faith and not just say Jesus, but, but walk out the ways of Jesus and care for the orphan and care for the distressed. And it was amazing. And I remember during one of the last nights, last days we were on this mission trip, I was, um, it was like a really long day. We were serving people the whole day and I was like 12, right? So we go and our uh, leader was like, all right, cool. We just finished the day. All right, it's dinner time. Me, a 12 year old, I was like, bet it's my favorite time of the day. Let's go. He gives us $10, me and a group, <laughs> group of three people, $10 and our leader. And he's like, all right, you have $10. I was like, oh, $10 per person for sure. I got that. I can, I'm just going to go McDonald's, get like 10 McDoubles. I'll be good. And so I was ready to go. Right. And then my, uh, uh the leader all of a sudden pulls a little whoop-de-doop and he's like, Hey, by the way, that $10 is for your whole group. That made me mad. And then he was like, that $10 is for you to also feed a homeless person. That made me double mad because I was like, where is the food for me? Like, how is $10 going to feed three people and a homeless person, a person experiencing homelessness? And I was like, uh, uh, uh. so we go and we do that McDonald's thing. We go get like 10 McDoubles from McDonald's or something like that. I don't even know what we got. And we go and I was so mad, right? Because I was like, you I was just serving the whole time. I was giving my life for Jesus. I was doing all this stuff. God, why have you forsaken? Right? I was so emotional, right? I was like, this is the worst thing ever. I'm never going on a mission trip ever again. And I remember I was going and serving this person who was experiencing homelessness. And the joy that it brought to him that these like three knucklehead kids would go and sacrifice their money, their money, right, to go and give to him. And, and for me, I knew I could go home and I would get a meal as soon as I went home to my parents and I could eat all the goldfish and fruit roll-ups I wanted. But in that moment, it was so terrible for me because I thought that I was suffering so much. And in that moment... Now that I look back, I think about my minuscule suffering. In no way am I comparing that to Jesus. But in my minuscule suffering of me not being satisfied with eating my measly meal, how much more so was God compelled to come to earth for me? Not because someone told him to and said, you have to do this, but because he wanted to. But out of love. That God went through way more suffering than we will ever go through 
but he chose to do it out of love. I think Isaiah is rewriting our expectations of who Jesus is in this passage. He's rewriting our expectations of who Jesus is. That he's, he's, he's saying that Jesus is exactly who he says he is, but he might not be who you think he is. That we have this idea of Jesus and we have this perception of Jesus or this need for Jesus to fulfill what I want, but he might not be that God that you want him to be in the way that you want him to be it. He might be different than what you expect. He says that he's a wonderful counselor. A wonderful counselor. As I was praying through this message, I was thinking about what does it mean to be a counselor? And I realized that good counsel has to come from a good reputation. Good counsel, good advice, good wisdom has to come from a good reputation. Why does that make sense? Why, why is that important to us? The reason that some of us are so jacked up is because we take advice from anybody. We're just like, oh, you gave good advice, so I'm going to take the good advice. And, and the, the, the reputation, the track record, the history of the person who gives the advice makes no sense. Would you ever go to a person who's failing math to tutor you in math? No. Would you ever go to somebody who's, who, who, who's, who almost made it and go to their seminar? No. Would you ever go to somebody who is in a ton of debt and be like, hey, I really need you to help me invest? No. Would you go to an almost influencer and say, I really need to learn from you and I want to fuck? No. A good... Good advice needs to come from a good reputation. It says that he is a wonderful counselor. That God's reputation to the people of Israel was more than just making them and choosing them. Some of us are like, oh man, no, I'm, I'm chosen by God. That's my, that's my good counsel. I'm chosen by like God's for me and not again. And we can quote all these Bible verses about who God is for us and, and who we think we are to him and all these things. And in reality, we need to recount who God really is for us and not just who we want him to be for us. Because there's a difference. And the wonderful counselor that Jesus is and that Jesus was going to be as Isaiah is prophesying this, we need to understand that it's not necessarily that he is going to give us the advice that we want, but he will give us the advice that we need. What has God's advice been to Israel at this point? We have creation, we have mercy, we have promises fulfilled, we have family, we have miracles, we have, they were in exile and he brought them out. We have prophets and kings and redemption and love. And I have a question for you. What has God's reputation been to you? Israel can look back really easily and say, this is, I, I know this is what God's reputation has been to me, but what has God's reputation been to you? You see, because advice is the freest Thing to give, but the costliest thing to take. You can give advice to anybody. Anybody can give advice. That's not hard to find. You're not going to be hard pressed to go to somebody and say, what should I do? And they will give you an answer. Not a good answer, but an answer. Advice is the freest thing to give, but the costliest thing to take. I don't know if you've ever given bad advice or been given bad advice, but that advice will steer the, direct, steer the direction of your life. Where are you getting your counsel from? Are we getting our counsel from the wonderful counselor? I think that some of us have such a hard time getting our counsel from the wonderful counselors because we don't necessarily see him as a wonderful counselor. We see him as a wonderful lawmaker. And we're like, oh, he's, he's the guy who tells me what not to do. 
He's the God who, no, he's wonderful, he's good, but he's the God who just gives me the rules. He's the God who kind of just takes away a little bit of my fun. He's the God who doesn't necessarily let me do everything that I want to do. But he's not that God. What if God isn't the God that you think he is? What if we need to change our expectation, change our anticipation of who God is to us and for us? He's not just a wonderful lawmaker. He's a wonderful counselor. He's not just the professor. He's also the tutor. God is the God who gives you the best way to live and then helps you live that way. God is the one who is the wonderful counselor to all. And, and he would draw amazing crowds. And I think about like if Jesus was on earth right now and he had a counseling office, like how many of us would rush to that counseling office? Like we would rush and be like, God, my life is out of way. And he'd be like, I know. And you'd be like, God, my money's ridiculous. God, oh, I know. God, my marriage or my kids or my job or my bosses. And where he'd be like, I know. And, and we would probably sprint to his office because we would realize, oh my goodness, he has, he's the wisest and he gives the best advice and he does all this stuff. But we don't run to the Holy Spirit in the same way. You know, like, like he's a counselor too in the same way that Jesus is a counselor, the Holy Spirit is a counselor. And I think about in terms of if we see God as that person, as who he says he is in this verse, as a wonderful counselor, we would all sprint to Jesus if he was right here. But for some reason, not a lot of us sprint to the Holy Spirit. He's that wonderful counselor for us. The second thing that this passage says is that he's a mighty God. Did you guys know that our mighty God wasn't presented in a mighty way? We, we talk about Advent and the incarnation of Jesus and what that means for us in humanity. And saying that God came to earth to be for us what we could not be for ourselves. But he didn't come in the way that people thought he would. People probably think, when you think Messiah, you think Savior of the world, you probably think he's going to come in this grand way with these chariots and with fire and with swords and, and, and probably going to dismantle the government that's oppressing the people. And he's going to do all these things. And he's probably going to do it right now because I need him right now. But God actually waited a couple hundred years and God didn't necessarily come in a palace. He actually came in a stable and God didn't necessarily come to a king, but he came to a commoner. And, God, and we have this expectation of who God is of what a mighty God is, and God again dismantles that idea. We have this expectation of who he is, and it might not necessarily be exactly who he is. That he's a mighty God, but not necessarily the way that we think he is. When God does mighty things, they don't always look mighty. You guys remember the story of Gideon? If you haven't, I'll, I'll recount it for you. There's this guy named Gideon in the Bible, and he was essentially the lowest of the low. In the hierarchy of his village, of his culture, of his society, he was the lowest family, lowest clan, lowest person, essentially. So he did not have a lot to give. And God comes to him and God is like, man, you're gonna be a mighty warrior. And then Gideon is essentially like, bro, what are you talking about? I'm terrified of the place that I'm in right now and I don't really know what to do. And God's like, no, you're a mighty warrior. And he's like, uh, okay, cool. And he puts God to all these weird tests and he's like, all right, God, if this is really you talking to me, um, cool, I'm gonna lay this fleece on the ground. And if it's you, then I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet with dew when I wake up. And God's like, weird tests, but all right, cool. And then he goes, wakes up and then God does it. And he's like, man, that was super cool, but I'm still not convinced. 
So this time, what if you make the fleece wet and the ground dry? And God's like, that's still weird, but all right, cool. He goes to sleep. He comes back and he's like, oh my goodness, you did it. I guess you really God. And God's like, I told you, bro. And Gideon gets up and he goes to his people and he's like, yo, God told us to go against these people who have been oppressing us. And everyone's like, Gideon, bro? And he's like, yeah, bro, God's for us. And he's like, all right, cool. So he gets all these people, thousands and thousands of men, and he goes and he tries to fight the Amalekites, these people who are oppressing his people. And he goes to them and he's like, man, we're going to defeat them. It's going to be great. We're going to have this great victory. And he goes over and God is like, <laughs> it's crazy. God goes up to him. He was like, you have too many people. He said, for this war, he said, you're about to go fight this people who've been oppressing you, hundreds of thousands of people. You have 32,000 people, I think. Yeah, you have 32,000 people. And he said, you have too many people. Gideon's like, God, that, what do you, huh? That doesn't make sense. What do you mean we have too, you, we have too many people? They have more people than us. And God's like, yeah, but you have too many people. If you beat them like this, you guys are gonna think you did it yourselves. And he's like, oh, okay. And so he's like, all right, Gideon, tell everyone who's scared to go home. And everyone's like, all right, dip, 10,000, dip. And he's like, oh, this stinks. And he's like, this is not a good idea. So he has 22,000 left. And then he goes to these people and he's like, all right, cool, we gonna beat them with 22,000. And God's like, nope, still too many. He's like, really, bro? And he goes and he's like, all right, cool, put them into another weird test. He says, go to the water. Everybody who drinks like a dog, laps it up in their hands, gets to stay. Everyone who gets down on their knees has to go home. Gideon's like, are you sure, bro? He's like, yeah. That means that 20,000 people went home. He had 300 people. And Gideon was like, uh, I might be crazy. Y'all, I don't know if you want to follow me. God takes them. Long story short, spoiler alert, they defeat their enemies Gideon comes back, praises God, and God showed himself mighty in not a mighty way. We find ourselves maintaining a position where you feel like you're at a big disadvantage to everything you're facing. But what if, just what if that is actually God setting you up for the victory that you need? What if God is taking away your army and you think that it's the enemy, but God is really preparing himself for a mighty victory? What if you think that God only does mighty things in mighty ways? We might miss the mighty things that God's trying to do. I remember in my Bible, it says that God uses the weak, the strong things to shame, the weak things to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. Your deficit might not actually be the enemy. It might be God. The lack that you have, the inexperience that you have, it might not be the enemy. It might be God. It might be your God trying to show up in a mighty way. Our mighty God, when he does mighty things, they don't always seem to be mighty, but he wants us to change our perspective. He's an unexpected king. He's an everlasting father, and this is probably the most personal of his descriptions because the issue is if, if you don't have, if you have God without the father, Without the aspect and, and knowing that he is a father, you lean towards religion. But if you have God with the aspect of the father, you lean towards relationship. We just read a few, past, a few minutes ago that they were offering up vain offerings, that they didn't have any relationship with God. They just had a religion with this perceived rule maker. And God wanted to remind them of who he was, 
saying that this isn't just me giving you rules or giving you a Messiah who's gonna be there and gone and save you and dip. No, this is a God who wants a relationship with you, who wants to invest in you, who wants to raise you up in the way that you should go, who wants to encourage you, who wants to uplift you, who wants to be there for you. This isn't a God who's just gonna be there for you one minute and not be there for you the next. This isn't a type of religion or faith where you have to earn to be a son. You are born into sonship. You don't have to earn your sonship anymore. And now I want you to not see your religion and your God as just a rule maker, but I need you to see him as a father. Isaiah is changing their expectation because what they thought and what they thought should happen was probably that, oh, he's going to be exactly like David was, that he's going to do exactly what David did. And what did David do? David was the person who was doing all these battles. He was defeating their enemies with sword. He was an amazing warrior. He was an amazing king. And they thought that Jesus was going to be another David. They thought that Jesus was going to be exactly like what they had before. But God, again, was changing their expectations. He wasn't going to be David. He wasn't a king who was going to come and overthrow and war and take. He's a king who was going to heal, serve, and pray. In the mind of the Israelite right now, if you're saying that I'm oppressed, I need help physically, actually, people are oppressing me. I don't need somebody to pray for me. I need somebody to defeat my enemies. And you get a baby from Bethlehem to a person who is not royalty and living in a place that is not so substantial, that is not really where a king should be in the weakest form. You're not expecting that person to do everything you thought it would do. They expected this king to overthrow everything that was oppressing them but he was actually just giving them a different way. He was an everlasting father, not the type that just is there and gone, but he wanted a relationship with them. If you have God without the father, you lean towards religion. And if you have God with the father, you lean towards relationship. Where are we leaning? And lastly, he's the prince of peace. And Darren, if you're here, you can come up now as I close. This one, I think, probably seems the most elusive sometimes. The Prince of Peace. And and we have this idea, and we know who God is, and we, we understand it in our minds, but peace really seems very elusive. And we might even think that peace is our circumstances, That's the trap that I fall into sometimes, that I start thinking that the peace is where I find myself in my circumstances and how my circumstances treat me. But that actually is not how God is defining peace at all. Because if it was, then we would not have a Jesus who is the Prince of Peace, but then born into chaos. Have you ever thought about the Prince of Peace's life? It was anything but peaceful. He was born into a dysfunction. He didn't have a place when he was born. He was born with people mocking him, mocking his family, with friends that betrayed him, with crowds that didn't like him, with a religious group that didn't accept him, with a people who he was coming to save that didn't want him. 
He walked into a garden called Gethsemane where he was so distraught about what he was about to do that he started sweating drops of blood. He went to a place where he had to carry a cross for you and for me and die for you and for me by the hands of you and me for you and me so that we can live with him. His life was anything but peaceful. And as soon as we start to think that that peace is a circumstance, we need to expect something different. We need to switch our expectation because the prince of peace's life was anything but peaceful. Which tells me that peace is not the absence of chaos, but the presence of Jesus. Because if we start going through something and say that my life is not peaceful because of the place that I found myself myself in, we start saying that Jesus is a liar because the Prince of Peace hardly ever found himself in a place of peace. If we start looking for a place of peace to have peace, we will quickly lose that peace when that place leaves. Whatever you put your peace in is where you will get your peace out of. And whatever you put your peace in might be where you lose your peace. Are you putting your peace in something temporal, in a job, in a person, in your bank account, in a lifestyle, in a neighborhood, in a student, in behavior? Where are we getting our peace? He's an unexpected king with an unexpected kingdom. As I close, it says that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isn't it beautiful that it says, it didn't say that you and I will uphold it or establish it. It says that he will uphold it and establish it. How many of you are thankful for a God who does all the heavy lifting for you? How many of us are thankful for a God who's going to accomplish what he said he would accomplish, who's going to do what he said he would do, and who's maybe even going to establish a kingdom that's different than the one that you might want or expect. Because the kingdom that they thought he would establish was one that was going to free them from the oppression that they found themselves in. But he actually said, I don't need to free you from the oppression that you find yourself in. I need to change your mindset so that you can free the other people who are oppressed. I'm going to use you to do my work. It's not a kingdom that has parties. It's not a kingdom that has terms. It's not a kingdom that has stances or political ideologies or social issues that we need to devise ourselves between. This is a kingdom that's not going to stop. It's not going to stop growing and it's only going to get better. It's a kingdom where the least, where the, the last shall be first. It's a kingdom where the meek will inherit. It's a kingdom where God came for the lowly to serve and not be served. And this is the kingdom that you find yourself in today. If you are a believer in Jesus, this is the kingdom that he promises you. Not a perfect kingdom where you will not suffer trials, but a kingdom where you know who is suffering with you. It's not a God who came to earth and said, I'm going to fix it and leave. It's a God who came to earth and said, I'm going to go, with, go through it with you. God didn't just pick us out of our mess. He sat with us in it. During this time of Advent, how can we expect something different? This is an unexpected king in an unexpected kingdom. He might not be who you thought he was. and He might not do what he thought you would do. 
This kingdom not, might not be what we want it to be. It's better. He's better. This life is better. Will you pray with me? God, we love you so much. We're so thankful for the gift of grace, God, that you chose to come to earth. You chose to live with us, to be there for us, to die for us. God, rewrite our expectations to know that you are a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, and our Prince of Peace.